I invite you to turn to Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1. Lord willing, we're going to soon resume our study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but I wanted to take a little bit of time over last week and this week to uh, look at a, a few special things that I believe would be beneficial to us as a church. And uh, this morning I'm going to be preaching to you uh, on the subject of ecclesiology, which really is uh, a favorite subject of mine. I, I really enjoy uh, the, the doctrine of ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. Um, and there are so many things that could be said about the doctrine of the church. The, the New Testament really is a church book. It was primarily uh, a compilation of letters written to local churches. And there are so many realities and commands and uh, imperatives in the Christian life that presume local church membership that presume that one is connected to the body. And uh, what I want to show you this morning, though, is, a, is an interesting study. I remember when I first saw these connections, and I, I want to make some connections in your mind and in your, your Bibles this morning. And I remember when I first saw these connections and just how it solidified to me the importance of the gathering of the saints, the importance of the local church. Uh, you know, thankfully, by God's common grace, the local church is is sort of assumed. It's it's it just common sense tells us that the local church is important. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then gathering with other believers to sing to God, to hear His word, and to fellowship just makes sense. It, it almost doesn't even need a scriptural defense for such a practice. Uh, but yet, if you were to ask a lot of Christians, uh, maybe l l put the question this way and ask yourself this question. What role does the local church have in the overarching plan of God? Well, if you ask that question, there might be some, some Christians who would struggle to come up with an answer. They understand the benefits they receive from the church and they understand the, the, the impact that it has on their life, but... I want us to take a look at the local church from, say, an 80,000-foot level. What is God doing with this thing called the local church? Um, when did the local church begin? When will the local church end? Um, will it end? And what is its purpose in what God has been accomplishing really since the dawn of creation and what he will continue to accomplish all throughout eternity? So you've got your Bibles open there to Acts chapter 1, and I've, I've read that as our scripture reading. It's important for you to understand that the book of Acts is a transitory book. Acts is a book that documents the transition from the Old Covenant administration to the New Covenant administration. And uh, the book of Acts is a very unique book in the New Testament. It's a historical book, really. There's a lot of narrative. There's a lot of historical dialogue and and events that are documented in the book of Acts. I had a professor that said the book of Acts is not a book where we would go to found our doctrine, but where we would go to demonstrate our doctrine. And I think that's, that's helpful advice. Uh, in other words, what that means is the, what the book of Acts does is it puts bone and, and flesh and skin on the epistles. The epistles are sort of the blueprint for the church. 
in the epistles we read how we are to conduct ourselves as, a, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we go to the book of Acts and we see what that looks like in practice. So the book of Acts is a very, very important book for our understanding. Um, we see in the book of Acts an outward change of covenantal administration. God has, of course, the, established with his people a gracious covenant. Uh, he established that covenant in the garden after the fall of man. He, the, our confession even reads that it, it pleased God uh, to enter into a covenant of grace with Adam. And that covenant of grace was to be God's plan for redeeming his people. But when God redeems his people, he doesn't just uh, immediately beam them up into heaven. No, he leaves them here on earth. Why? Why does he do that? Well, so that they can worship him and praise him and serve him while they live here on this earth. And you say, well, how do they know how to do that? Well, he's given them written instructions. He's given them testaments, testimonies. Uh, the term testament, the word testament, is synonymous with the word covenant. Uh, for, for much of church history, for much of, or should I say, much of redemptive history, God's people worshipped and served under the administration of the old covenant. Much of your Bible records what that looked like, and it record, recorded that administration. Well, we're not under that administration anymore. We're now under the administration of the new covenant, which began with the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a lot of our theology and a lot of our practice would be cleared up if we, if we start from the very beginning of this transition. If you understand the transition, what continues, what doesn't continue, uh, what actually, what, what change actually took place in the New Covenant, there's a lot of theological errors uh, because of people that want to bring the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, and then there's a lot of theological errors of people that want to take eternal, immutable principles and say, ah, it's just the Old Covenant, we're in the New Covenant now. So we need to understand this transition. And that in and of itself could be a very lengthy study, maybe one that would be profitable for us to do at some point here at this church. But what I want us to look today is, is a very specific aspect of that transition as it pertains to how God is to be corporately worshipped. Uh, so if you're looking there at Acts chapter number one, notice in verse two, um, it says, until the day in which he was taken up. So Luke, of course, is writing this book of Acts, and he's writing to this man named Theophilus. We don't really know too much about him. And he says that it contains a testimony of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So you know that in between the resurrection and ascension of Christ... Jesus spent 40 days teaching his apostles in a glorified body. He spent 40 days teaching his apostles. The apostles are very important for us because the, the Bible says that they are the foundation of the church. The church was built upon the apostles and the prophets. They were the first leaders of the church, the, the, the local church that was established during the earthly ministry of Christ. Jesus discipled these apostles for three and a half years, but now he is preparing to go back to heaven, and so he gives them a 40-day intensive. He gives them a 40-day module, a 40-day lesson. 
Do you think that what he taught in these 40 days is important? Absolutely. Now, is, did Jesus ever teach anything that wasn't important? Of course not. Uh, but we would do well to really understand the importance of the teachings that Jesus delivers. The last teachings he personally will deliver before his ascension. We don't have to sit in the dark wondering what Jesus taught about. Here he is with these under-shepherds that he left to care for his church. The apostles had received the ecclesiastical blueprint from Jesus Christ, the master builder, and they are now tasked with carrying out and maintaining this divine design until the Lord returns. Uh, There's some debate on when exactly did the church begin? Well, there are some who will argue that uh, the church began in the Old Testament, Well, certainly there were an elect people. There was an elect assembly in the Old Testament. But um, one of the reasons why, I jokingly say this tongue-in-cheek, but one of the reasons why we're Baptists is because we believe that the new covenant is actually new. So the local church is something that's new and specific to the new covenant administration. But then you have others that will say, well, the church didn't actually begin until perhaps the day of Pentecost or much later in the book of Acts. I think the Bible's unmistakably clear on this, that the church was established personally by Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. That's when the church was built. At this point, in Acts chapter number 1, they had baptism. They had the Lord's Supper. They had church discipline. He gave them to that in Matthew 18. They had the Great Commission. And later on in chapter 1, they're going to have a business meeting. All of the components have been assembled. The church has been built. But there's a key uh, aspect of the church that hasn't yet happened, and that's what we're going to see today. But back to this lesson that Jesus is delivering, this lesson. What is he talking about? What is the subject of his lesson? Look at verse 3. To whom also, this is the apostles, he showed himself alive after his passion, uh, old antiquated word for just his sufferings, after he died on the cross and rose again, he showed himself, he proved himself by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days. And here's the subject of his, of his lesson. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Say, so what did Jesus teach the apostles before he ascended into heaven? Certainly he gave them uh, a conference on church growth strategies, right? No, he, he didn't do that. Certainly he gave them, this, this would have been great, right? An eschatology seminar. Well, not, not exactly. No, for 40 days, Jesus taught on the kingdom of God. On the kingdom of God. That tells us, brothers and sisters, that the subject of the kingdom of God is very important. Very important. It makes sense that Jesus would conclude his incarnate ministry with a final lesson on this all-important topic. He delivers a full-orb theology of his kingdom as it is dispensed in the present age of the gospel and in the coming age after all his enemies will be put under his feet. And it was needful for Jesus to deliver this final discourse on the kingdom. For if the apostles were to be able to do the work that Jesus had left them, they would have to have an understanding of the kingdom. They have to know what the kingdom is. How are you going to build the kingdom if you don't know what the kingdom is? How are you going to be a worker for the kingdom if you don't understand how the kingdom works? So again, we will, as we will soon see, 
this subject of the kingdom is paramount to our understanding of the church. The church and the kingdom go hand in hand. Though they're not the same thing exactly, they function in such a way that you must understand one to understand the other. And there is a transition in the kingdom with the coming of the new covenant that's very important for us to see. But continuing on in in Acts 1, notice in verse 4 he says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. Now, why would he tell them that? Jesus told them, he already gave them the great commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But wait a minute, Jesus, now you're saying don't depart from Jerusalem. Why not? Verse 4, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. Because, brothers, this is what Jesus said to them, because, brothers, yes, I have given you the great commission, but until you receive this promise, which we know is the, is the coming of the Spirit, the advent of the, the Holy Spirit corporately filling the church, you won't be able to carry out the great commission. Right. You have all of the tools. You, you have all of the, the blueprints, but you don't have the power. You don't yet have the power. Verse 5, he tells us what this problem is. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Imagine this scene, if you will. Jesus is meeting with the apostles, the elders of the first church, if you will. And he tells these 11 men in an attic, he tells them that their little assembly is going to be used by God to preach the gospel all over the world and and, and to expand the boundaries of his kingdom until he comes again. What kind of questions do you think they might have? Um, Lord, have you looked around? There's just 11 of us. We're being persecuted already. You, You were just crucified on a cross. I don't know if you realize this, Jesus, but your church isn't really popular in the world right now. And you mean to tell me that you're going to use us? We're going to preach the gospel throughout the whole world? All the odds are against us. And so Jesus tells them, yes, I know all of that. But what you don't know is just how powerful this promise is. You're going to receive the promise of the Father. The Spirit of God will descend upon this congregation and will fill this institution called the church and it will empower you to do things that you could never do if you really were just 11 men in an attic. Not by the strength of their flesh, but through the spiritual empowering of the Holy Ghost they would carry out the Great Commission. Just as John immersed individual believers in water, so would Jesus immerse his church in the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, this, my goal this morning is not to talk to you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's a, it's a very important doctrine that's very misunderstood. I want you to understand one truth about it. I, I could say so much, but there's one thing I want to be clear about. Jesus is the administrator of this baptism. The Holy Spirit has never baptized anyone into anything. 
Jesus is the one who does the baptizing. The Holy Spirit is the medium into which we are baptized. So it's, it's, it's not... Uh, uh, it's not, as some would say, some second blessing, some, some charismatic feeling that comes upon individuals when they, quote-unquote, receive the Holy Ghost. But it's something that Jesus does corporately to his church. In the same way that John immersed uh, individuals in water, this church in the upper room, not many days hence, is going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, as we'll, as we'll see. Look at verse 6 in Acts chapter 1. Uh, they asked a question that has been throwing theological conundrums at, at Christians for 2,000 years. <laughs> How many uh, funny eschatological views have come from Acts 1-6? I have no idea. He says, When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They, they still hadn't quite got it. They still hadn't quite understood 40 days of teaching on the kingdom, but yet they still haven't quite gone. Lord, when are you gonna when are you gonna resurrect that throne in Jerusalem? When are you gonna raise up another king to sit on David's throne? And when are you gonna overthrow this this tyrannical Roman government and, and be that military messiah that we've been waiting for? And of course our Lord is so patient. And he just says to him in verse 7. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. I'm sure he was thinking something like, Oh, brothers, if you only knew just how marvelous and mighty this kingdom was, David's throne would look like a dunghill to you. And then in verse 8, of course, But ye shall receive power. What a beautiful verse. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem. And here's the transition. This, is, this, this was controversial in the first century. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus says, I'm not establishing some physical earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. No, you're going to be witnesses unto me throughout the whole world. My kingdom is going to encompass the whole earth. This mighty kingdom that Jesus spoke of and the institution of the local church are aspects of the transition from the old covenant ministration to the new covenant ministration. By understanding this transition... And the administration of the new covenant, we will understand the role that the church plays in redemptive history. And by the time I'm done this morning, I want you to understand that this verse in Acts 1.8 is just as personal to you as it was to the apostles themselves. You are a part of what Jesus is doing through his kingdom and through his church. So let us examine this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And we're going to look at it in two phases. Number one, we see there is a transition in the kingdom of God. And number two, there is a transition in the house of God. Okay, Number one, the kingdom. Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to define what aspect of the kingdom are we talking about. Because there is, of course, a universal kingdom. God is the sovereign ruler over all things. 
And in that kingdom, he uh, overcomes all enemies. No one stands. There are no rebels. He is sovereign in that kingdom. And then there's the spiritual kingdom, which is the invisible kingdom through which Christ rules in the hearts of his people. When we talk about the transition of the kingdom, we are speaking of the mediatorial kingdom, the intermediate kingdom, the kingdom through which Christ rules through mediators, or he rules through a medium. He rules through a medium. It is a visible manifestation of his kingdom. And he has, on earth, a visible manifestation of his kingdom. He always has, and he always will. When we talk about the transition of God's kingdom, this is the kingdom that we are referring to. God has always had such a visible manifestation. Let me ask you a Bible question. What was the visible manifestation of God's kingdom in the Old Testament? It was Israel. Israel. The physical ethnic nation of Israel was the kingdom of God. Um, They were also a political state. Let me say to you, and again, this could be a message in and of itself, the kingdom of God is no longer identified with any particular political state. It is not. America is not the kingdom of God. China is not the kingdom of God. But in the Old Covenant, Israel, the nation, the physical geopolitical nation, was the kingdom of God. If you were not an Israelite, you were not in God's kingdom. In order for you to be a citizen of God's kingdom, you had to become an Israelite. You had to become what they called a proselyte. Uh, Didn't matter how... Gentlemen, didn't matter how old you were. <laughs> if you wanted to be in the kingdom, you had to submit to the ordinances of the kingdom. That means circumcision, uh, observing dietary laws and ceremonial laws, and you need to become a citizen of Israel. And then you're in the kingdom. But what does Jesus say in Acts 1? You're going to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the world. As a result of the promise in Acts 1, the kingdom of God expands beyond Israel and it transcends geopolitical and ethnic boundaries. Amen. So, you say, well then where is it today? If it's not identified with any particular nation, where is it? What is the is there anything is there any institution on the earth today that we can look at and we can point to and we can say there it is there's the kingdom of Christ visibly manifested for us well let me answer this question for you by turning you to Matthew 21 Matthew 21 Jesus gives a parable here in Matthew 21 the parable of the vineyard Matthew 21 and verse 33. Look at it. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen and uh, that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. 
But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. The householder here is, of course, God the Father. And the vineyard is his kingdom. And he lends out his kingdom to husbandmen. The husbandmen represent apostate Israel. They were the ones in the Old Covenant that were commissioned to care for the kingdom of God. Yea, they even were the kingdom of God. But what happened? God sent unto them servants, sent unto them prophet after prophet, and they rejected the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Joel and Nahum and Habakkuk. And they rejected them, so on and so forth, killed them even. And then in the fullness of time, the husbandman sent forth his own son, and they crucified him on a cross. Verse 39, And they, the husbandmen, caught him, the son, cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. He was crucified on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Verse 40, When the Lord of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Verse 41, They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men. And will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 43, don't miss this. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. When Israel rejected the Messiah, God took the kingdom from them. And in 70 AD, destroyed them. And he gives it to another nation. 1 Peter 2, 9. What does the New Testament refer to the church as? But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Turn to Luke 22. Luke 22 and uh, verse 29. Luke 22 and verse 29. Jesus is here speaking to the same group, the same group that he was with in Acts chapter 1. What does he say? Luke 22 and verse 29. He says, And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I appoint unto you a kingdom, Jesus says to his disciples. What is the institution that we can look at today And we can point to them and they can say, there's the kingdom of Christ in the world, the local New Testament church. And he says, I've given you this kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table. Does that sound familiar to you? He's talking about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is when he invites us to come and dine with the king at his kingdom. That's why... 
we fence our table and we want to make sure that the only ones coming and partaking are those who are citizens of the kingdom. Amen. Given unto you a kingdom. Well, was that just to the apostles? No, brothers and sisters, because what did they do? They went out and they planted churches. And then those churches planted churches. And then those churches planted churches. And then those churches planted churches. And then two years ago, a church about 40 minutes from here planted a church right here in Paris, Tennessee. And God says to us today, I have appointed unto you a kingdom. We are executors. We are carrying out the things that he has commanded. We are not the legislators. He is the king. We have no authority to do anything other than what he has given in his charter, which is the word of God, to do and to steward his kingdom. And so long as we follow his word, when he comes back, we, his husbandmen, he will say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. But when we begin to try to carry out the work of his kingdom in a way that he's not prescribed in his charter, we become wicked, miserable husbandmen. Matthew 16 verses 18 and 19, we see very clearly the connection of the church with the kingdom. Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then in verse 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, they're synonymous terms in the New Testament. What institution holds the keys of the kingdom? The church. The church does. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The local church is not peripheral in God's plans for his people. It is the program of God for his people in the new covenant. No exceptions, no substitutions. So the kingdom of God refers to the expanse of Christ's rule and his reign. But what about worship? What about the, the worship of God's people? I've seen, we've seen the transition of the kingdom. I want to show you now the transition of the house of God. We oftentimes use the house of God in, in a very casual manner. Uh, we'll refer to going to church as we're going to the house of God. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that statement, by the way, because this is... Uh, the house of God. But if we study the scriptures, we see that there's actually a great deal of significance to this term, the house of God. Just as God has always had a kingdom on this earth, this visible kingdom has always had a particular house. It's always had a particular house. The house of God is to be the center of his worship and his dealings with the rest of the world. They would, uh, the house would be, would be the place where the people of God would, would come together uh, for the purpose of carrying out family business. And that family business, the, the chief business that we have, is, of course, the worship of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've uh, asked you a question before, and you did pretty good with that one. Let me see if you do good with this one. What was the house of God in the Old Testament? What, what was the place where they would come together. Well, it was the temple, and it was also, of course, the tabernacle. The tabernacle and the temple were the same uh, covenantal administration. The, the tabernacle finds its fulfillment in 
the temple. Uh, just as it in, in, in the old covenant, if you wanted to be a, a citizen of the kingdom, you had to become an Israelite. Well, if you wanted to rightly worship God, you have to go to Jerusalem. You've got you, you to gotta pack up, take the trip, bring your unblemished heifer, and go to Jerusalem if you want to worship God the way that he has commanded you to worship him. It remains true today in the New Covenant that you cannot rightly worship God apart from the house of God. Let me show you this transition. Turn to Exodus 40. This part of the study really, to me, is just fascinating. When you see this connection, I, I hope it really just makes you light up the way it makes me light up. Exodus 40, we see the connections here. Who was the one that God commissioned to build the tabernacle? Well, it was, of course, Moses. And we see this phrase in Exodus 40, last chapter of the book of Exodus. We see this phrase, verse 16, we see it. Here's the phrase. Thus did Moses, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. In reference to the building of the tabernacle. We see that phrase repeated again in verse 19. As the Lord commanded Moses, so did he. We see it in verse 21, verse 25, verse 27, and verse 29. God is stressing to us the importance of meticulously following his divine design. When, when you read the Bible for the first time, what's, what's the first big challenge you come to? Well, for most of you, it's probably the several chapters in Exodus where he's just describing all of these materials. And you read that and you think, what is the purpose of this? This is the purpose of it, brothers and sisters. Because it matters how we worship God. It matters how we serve God. It matters. If God said, take a brass pole and put a golden laver on it and overlay it with sheepskin, you can't use stainless steel and aluminum foil. You must use the materials that God commanded in his word. And Moses, as a faithful husbandman, did whatever the Lord commanded him. Let me ask you a question. When was the, when was the tabernacle built? This is not a trick question. When all the materials were assembled together, right? When was the church built? when Jesus assembled it in his earthly ministry. But the, the church was unable to carry out its commission before it received divine power. So too, the tabernacle. Even though it had been physically assembled and put together, there was still something missing. Verse 34. Moses did all that the Lord commanded. The tabernacle has been established. Verse 34 of Exodus 40 says this, Then... A cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, they, uh, uh, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. 
What makes the tabernacle the house of God is the Spirit of God descending upon it. Well, the tabernacle, of course, uh, was a was a transitory building that was made. It was a tent. It was made to be put up and taken down as as the children of Israel moved. But as I like to say, they got enough money in their building budget and their building program. They they had a fundraiser, and they decided, you know what? It's time for us to build us a permanent place. Permanent place. Second Samuel seven and verse five. Uh, Go and tell my servant David. Thus saith the Lord, shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in. So God tells David, gather up the materials. Now, David wasn't the man that presided over the construction of the temple, was he? But he gathered the materials. Uh, Was there anybody that God sent before the Lord to gather up the materials before the Lord came and built the church? There's a voice crying in the wilderness who said, This my joy is fulfilled just to hear the voice of the bridegroom. Gathers the materials. And Jesus comes to an already prepared place, already prepared people, and builds his church. So David gathers the materials. Turn to Second Chronicles 7. Second Chronicles 7. David gathers the materials, but who builds the temple? Solomon. Solomon builds the temple. And I could ask you the same question, and you'd give me the same right answer. When was the temple built? Well, it was built when all those materials were put together and the, the physical building was constructed. But now, look at verses 1 through 3. Remember what we just read in Exodus 40. Second Chronicles 7, verses 1 through 3. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, then the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices... And the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Amen. The Spirit of God accredited the temple. That was a visible manifestation whereby God was saying, this is my house. And if you want to worship me, this is where you must go. This is where you must be because that's where my spirit is. Well, I've got good news for you, brothers and sisters. You do not have to go out and purchase a plane ticket and fly to Israel and go to Jerusalem. The temple's not even there anymore, by the way. It's destroyed. Well, does God have a house today? Is there any institution that we could look to today and we could point to and we could say, there's God's house? Turn to Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2. This is really uh, phenomenal stuff. And if this gets a hold of you, it will change the way you look at the new covenant and your membership at the Lord's church. Acts chapter 2. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem It won't be long. You're going to receive the promise of the Father. The materials are built. The building is constructed. Everything is set in place. You have baptism and the Lord's Supper. You have the Word of God. You have the Great Commission. But you lack one thing. Mm -hmm. Acts 2 and verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, 
And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Do you see that? Do you see what God is doing there in Acts 2? He is accrediting and empowering His local New Testament church as the house of God in the New Covenant. And He's already told us that this church is not going to be centralized to any one location. In fact, here's why the New Covenant is so much more superior, superiorly glorious. Succeeding in glory. Because what did the Spirit fill? It didn't fill the physical room that they were sitting in. It says the Holy Ghost filled them. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. Because the church is not a building. It's not a kingdom. It's not a building. It's not a location. It's people. It's blood-bought, baptized people who obey the Word of God, who seek to worship Him, and who are filled with the Holy Ghost. The church was filled with the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. It is the house of God. Last place I'll ask you to turn, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. 1 Timothy 3, 15. Paul is writing now this new covenant epistle. I want you to think of the epistles as you would think of those chapters in Exodus with all those building instructions. Does that help you to see their importance? You say, well, I mean, how significant are those instructions in the latter half of Exodus? How significant are those instructions? How significant is the book of Ephesians? How significant is the book of Romans? How significant is the book of 1 Corinthians? Well, you would say, absolutely essential. Those books contain indispensable doctrine for us as New Testament Christians. Well, Exodus chapters 20 through 40, just as indispensable to someone who wanted to worship God in the Old Covenant. So Paul's writing this epistle. This is to Timothy. But it's still a church epistle. He's writing to Timothy as the pastor of a local church. And he says... These things, verse 14, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, verse 15, but if I tarry long, this is why I'm writing to you, Timothy, because I might not get there on time. And if I don't get there on time, I want you to know that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. You know, there is a certain behavior that is expected of church members and, and, and that's not talking about rules. I'm not talking about a list of just do's and don'ts. But I'm talking about God cares about what we do. He cares about how we worship. He cares about how we treat one another. He cares about how we interact. It matters to God. Those things matter to God. We do not have the liberty to, to worship God any way we see fit. Could you imagine someone in the Old Testament? Could you imagine an Israelite in the Old Testament? saying, you know what, I just don't feel like going to the tabernacle today. I've prayed about it, and I think that I'm going to worship God in my tent, with my family. 
Uh, I'm, we're gonna we're gonna do our own thing today. Would that have worked? Absolutely not. They, they, they would have said, "What do you mean you're gonna worship God however you see fit?" No, God has given us these divine instructions to build this tabernacle. And he said, this is the way that you worship me. And he even sent the Spirit to descend upon the tabernacle and fill the tabernacle so that we would all know that this is where we go if we want to worship God. I don't know about you, but I want to be in that institution in Acts chapter 2 that was filled with the Spirit, that had the power of God upon it, that was divinely built, ordained, instituted, and commissioned by our Lord to serve Him and worship Him throughout this age. I want to be affixed to that institution. And that institution is the local New Testament church. It can meet anywhere. It can meet in a home. It can meet in a big building. It can meet in a storefront. It doesn't matter where it meets. That's irrelevant. It can speak English. It can speak speak Spanish. It could, uh, they could wear suits and ties. They could wear t-shirts. It doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. The only thing that matters is that they're following the blueprint that God gave in their word. There's plenty of things he gives us liberty on. I, I, I like tying this tie Sunday mornings. It makes me feel good about myself when I walk out to come to church. Okay, uh, But there's no verse that says thou shalt tie your tie before you go to church. But there are some verses that say thou shalt Assemble, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Thou shalt immerse believers in water upon a profession of their faith. Thou shalt observe the Lord's Supper with the proper scripturally ordained elements and the proper scripturally ordained participants. Thou shalt sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Thou shalt preach the word of God. Thou shalt exercise biblical church discipline. Thou shalt preach the gospel into all the world until I return. Those things are not negotiable. And if we're going to worship the Lord rightly, we must be following this blueprint. This is nothing new. I'm not really preaching anything today that's radical. This is what Christians have always believed. This is what uh, was, was codified in the confessions of the church at the time of the Reformation. Let me read to you from the confession we hold at this church, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. In chapter 26 and paragraph 4, the confession states that Jesus Christ had the power to institute the local church. And then paragraph 5 says this, In the execution of this power, wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of this world unto himself through the ministry of this word, by his Spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he prescribeth to them in his word. Listen to this. Those thus called, so save people, Those he saves, those he saves, he commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in the world. The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and to one another. Isn't that beautiful? By the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. 
That's what grace will do in your heart, by the way. When God saves you out of this world, you don't want to sit around in it anymore. You know, there's something that God puts within you, a spirit that he puts within you, where you say, I want to find some other people that he's been gracious to. And I want to go and be with them. And and I want to give myself up to them. Commit myself to them. And love them and have them love me. And I want to worship the Lord together with them. It's a natural desire that God gives us. And I praise God for that desire. So I don't mean to sound too harsh. I, I really don't mean to sound too too abrupt. See, I'll be the first to tell you that nowhere does the Bible say you have to be a member of this church. Absolutely not. But you do have to be a member of the Lord's church. If you're going to worship Him rightly, if you're going to obey all that He's commanded, that's what the Great Commission says, right? Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded. Do you realize that all of those things that Jesus commands require others? Mm-hmm. How are you going to practice baptism, worshiping God alone at your coffee table? How are you going to practice the Lord's Supper, worshiping God alone in your kitchen? No, we need one another. I, there is a real sense in which I am dependent upon you for my obedience. Because if I don't have a church, there are things that Jesus has commanded me to do that I'm unable to do. We need one another. How much more ought we to love one another? Let me close by just reading you a list here. This is just an interesting tidbit contrasting the Old and New Covenant administrations. They both had a chosen builder. The Old Covenant had Moses. The New Covenant has Christ. They both have a visible house. The Old Covenant had the tabernacle. The New Covenant has the temple. Or the New Covenant has the church, excuse me. The Old Covenant had the tabernacle and the temple. The New Covenant has the church. They both had ordained ministers. The the Old Covenant had Levites, prophets. The New Covenant has pastors, elders. Pastors or elders. Same, Same office, two terms to describe them. They both have chosen ordinances. The Old Covenant had feasts and ceremonies, and dietary laws, and so on and so forth. Well, the ceremonial laws of the New Covenant are the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They both have a divine accreditation. They were both immersed and filled with the Spirit. They both have a body of scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they have a commission to evangelize the world. Matthew twenty-three fifteen. Israel was supposed to do that. You know, Israel was supposed to be a light unto the world. But they rejected the prophets. They rejected the Son. The kingdom was taken from them. And Jesus now says to us, You, you, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. I love the Lord. I love His church. I love each one of you. I pray that God would continue to do this work in us and through us for His honor and His glory until He returns. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness to us. Lord, I really love this study. I know it's a bit more doctrinal than what we typically do on a Lord's Day morning, but I believe that uh, it's, a, it's imperative for us to see these things, and I'm so thankful that we do have them in your word. And Lord, to know that we are worshiping you in a way that you accept is a glorious thought. To know that you are pleased with our worship. Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name for your honor and glory's sake. Amen. Yeah. <laughs>